Hey, listeners. One of our goals of this podcast is to build a vibrant community around the business of wine. We've been delivering compelling and educational content for two years. We have really appreciated the outreach and engagement from you, our dear listeners, and a number of you have asked how you can help support the show. We love making the show and keeping the quality high, so we decided to launch a Patreon account where you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. We've set the contribution to $5 a month to encourage as many people as possible to participate. Go to patreon.com slash xchateau to sign up. We'll put a link in our show notes and on xchateau.com, and we'll be announcing new patrons with each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this live edition, Clubhouse live edition of X Chateau podcast. Really appreciate everybody joining here. Typically, we do one or two guests, which is really the limit of our system. So going to something like Clubhouse allows us to have a wider panel and, and be able to answer more questions and cover a broader range of topics. So this is our 2021 year-end wrap-up episode for the business of wine. And 2021 has been a, a pretty crazy year. The promise of the end of the pandemic with vaccines rolling out globally, upended the, we were then upended by the Delta variant and now the Omicron variant. The global start and restarts has had major impacts to economies and supply chains and driving up the price of shipping. We've had, at the beginning of the year, we had tariffs on wine between the U.S. and Europe. Have made And there's been some dramatic changes on that front. Governments around the world are pumping money into the economies. And we've seen massive asset price appreciation and inflation across the board, both on the financial assets as well as alternatives like fine wine. Perhaps coinciding with the rise of online wine buying, the clean and natural wine segments have seen to also have blossomed in 2021 as well. So we're going to discuss a number of these topics and answer questions that you're interested in. We've assembled a fantastic set of panelists, giving us a diverse set of perspectives from producers to retailers to importers and distributors and everything in between. So let me give some brief introductions here. So from the producer perspective, we have Diana Snowden-Sace, winemaker at Snowden Vineyards in Napa and Domaine Dujac in Burgundy. From the importer perspective, we have Xavier Barlier, who's the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Communications for Mesa Marks and Domaines USA, the importation arm of Champagne Louis Rotor and related companies. From a distributor perspective, we have Michael Papaleo, hopefully I said that correctly, who's the VP of Sales at Banville Wine Merchants, an importer and distributor focused on the New York, New Jersey, and Mid-Atlantic region. From a retailer perspective, we have Kyle Meyer, managing partner of the Wine Exchange, a leading wine retailer in Orange County, California. And then we have wine critic and reviewer, Lisa Prati-Brown, who is a master of wine and the editor-in-chief of Robert Parker's Wine Advocate for the last 13 years. I want to welcome everybody. Maybe you say a brief hello and uh, if anything else you want to add in, in regards. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi, everybody. How's it going? A lot of great perspectives to learn from in this episode. We can't talk about 2021 without reopening from COVID and the disruptions that happened with the different variants like Delta and now Omicron, if I'm pronouncing that right. And the opening and closing of restaurants and winery, hospitality, and and just business in general that's impacted the wholesale and retail elements of the wine industry. So maybe we can start with the impact to wineries. Diana, you run wineries around the world, including in Napa Valley and Burgundy. How did the different stoppages and COVID regulations impact your various businesses in 2021? Thanks. Um, nice to be here. Hello, everyone. COVID, we were actually producers both in Napa in California and in, and in France were very lucky because they were considered an essential job. And so we weren't required to stop stop tending our vineyards and stop doing winemaking. And so really our biggest concern was just keeping our employees safe. That was probably, you know, as, as things started sh shutting down, that was our number one problem to try to solve because we have quite a few people working together. We had bottling almost immediately after the first shutdown in France. And so we were trying to get masks. There weren't masks at the time. We actually had some clients mail us some from Asia and get hand sanitizers and spread out in the areas where we have lunch breaks and that kind of thing. And then it sort of, you know, it kind of hit a rhythm and there was something very comforting about being able to do our tasks, which 
have really not varied over time in terms of pruning and going out and doing canopy management. And we really felt like that kind of uh, manual work, which is outdoors, was really quite a blessing. So certainly the receiving of clients and hosting, hosting visitors, that completely came to a dead halt. But in terms of our, our essential task, which is to grow grapes and make wine, we were able to carry on. And so we felt very fortunate about that. So Mike, on the other side of that spectrum, from the distributor angle, how did 2021 play out for you, especially shifts in on-premise and off-premise and grocery stores and even delivery like Drizzly really caught on in 2021? Well, we can't really talk about 2021 without kind of talking about 2020. It was a 2021, we really started to kind of figure out the game a little bit better. You know, 2020 with COVID lockdown really was challenging those five weeks of lockdown, especially in Manhattan. We started to get better at non-in-person sales. And I think in 2021, we really started to perfect the game a little bit better. Coming out of 2020, we saw the pivot towards comfort brands. And our average case price was about $135, $136. But what we also saw was an increase in luxury goods. And so in 2021, we really evolved our focus onto luxury goods. Burgundy in particular was a strong segment for us this year. And we increased our case average by $30. Off-premise, our on-off split before the pandemic In 2019, our business was 55% on-premise. In 2020, obviously, with the shutdown of the city and some of the other outlying areas, we were at 27% on-premise. So we quickly, quickly captured as much off-premise as we could. Um, And we've started to see that normalize a little bit. We're still not fully open. There's still some restaurants that have yet to open or some of them just opened for a few months. But we're starting to see that split start to to narrow a bit. And so we're now sitting at 44% of our business on-premise and 56% of our business off-premise. So quite a shift. We, as I mentioned, got much better at selling wine to our retailers and our restaurateurs over the phone or online. And and even since we have had in-person meetings over these last several months, now that part of the business hasn't gone away. We've continued to see a steady climb in retail business, but obviously not the same boom as last year as we saw. Businesses with e-commerce platforms are still climbing. Um, We're still seeing large chain stores, and their business is very strong. Whereas before, we were seeing the collector market drinking wines and then ordering them and then drinking them again. Now we are seeing people starting to save some things. So the thirst has kind of been satiated a bit when we're starting to see the collector market increase. You know, Drizzly in New York City for bottle shops is important for brands with a lot of name recognition. In our current portfolio mix, while we do have some of those brands, you know, we tend to skew more towards the luxury market. So we haven't seen Drizzly as impactful in that respect. And then here and our main response, our main challenge, as we see our restaurants that have not yet fully opened because of their own staffing shortages. And then on our end, our biggest response to COVID as we entered into 2021 was investing in our people and in our portfolio. As unfortunate as it is, as we've seen a lot of our smaller competitors start to lose some footing financially, this was an opportunity for us to grow. So in 2020, we were 12 people selling in New York and New Jersey. In 2021, we are now at 16. And in 2022, we plan on growing to 21 people. Wow, it's quite a bit of changes. And and Mike, you mentioned that you got a lot better at selling offline, if you will, or not in person. What were the uh, key elements of that? Well, the key elements are creating compelling content for our customers. It's understanding what they're selling. And it's a lot of times as a salesperson, a lot of salespeople, you know, you send an email, you make a phone call and you say, Hey, can I, can I meet with you? Can we set up an appointment and taste? And without that out of the equation, you have to think about what is going to compel somebody that is so busy to even answer your email. So it's humor is always good. I actually had an account that had to cancel the appointment an in-person appointment due to a COVID outbreak at their restaurant. 
So I told him that I was just going to write the recap email as though we had our in-person appointment and mentioned how much he loved the wines and all this and that. I thought it, I thought it was pretty funny. And it's, it's trying to find ways to engage. And during this time, every element of the three-tier system all needs each other. So a little humor really goes a long way. So Kyle, you're on the opposite end of that. Does humor work for you? Humor always works for us. As a retailer, one of our main jobs is our mojo is kind of take the piss out of the wine business a little bit. You know what I mean? Like we sell a lot of great wine, but we do it like in a, an affable, humorous type way. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And, you know, taking yourself seriously, it was it was really hard not to do that in 2020. So what we had to do is we had to sell wine, but we had to do it still in our in our own certain way while still being respectful of what was happening at the time in the world, which was unprecedented. <laughs> Insane. 2020 was crazy town for us. It was the craziest year ever from a wine sales perspective. Uh, second quarter of 2020 was, it was like that commercial where you see the the printout for the online business and they get the one order and then it goes, and that was our second quarter. It was insane. People bought everything. They literally cleaned us out. They bought old rosé. They bought old Alsatian wine. They bought Savoie. Everything disappeared from our shelves. And and then what happened is, you know, after that rush from the second quarter to third quarter of 2020, by the time we got into the last quarter, it was kind of like, okay, well, we need wine now. And then what happened is the whole supply chain, plus the tariffs at the time, plus folks not going out and selling us wine, had a real impact, I think, in the last quarter of our business in 2020 with regards to what we had access to. And then that carried over into 2021 for sure. So. And in 2020 and 2021, online sales, as you mentioned, went through the roof. When things started to reopen with people being allowed to go back and shop at a store in person, did online sales slow down? Did it start to revert itself a little or what was your experience? A few people came back, you know, but I think a lot of people are just really comfortable buying online now. And we do a huge uh, pickup will call business here, you know. So, so in Southern California, we have a large client base. So a lot of folks simply buy online from our daily offers and the website and then uh, pick up at their convenience on the weekend or what have you. So we saw that stick, right? So we were already primarily an online retail company prior to COVID, probably in that 70, 75% range. And COVID saw us go to like basically 85 to 90% online. We did have the business open in 2020 on a limited basis, not too many people, you know, et cetera, et cetera, doing all the right stuff. And in 2021, we did have more people coming in. But by this juncture, a lot of people have been trained to, to kind of purchase online, and, and that's perfectly fine by us. So did you see like a second holiday season kind of level of sales when things started reopening again in April? Or was it more seasonal as you'd expect a normal year to be? You know, I'd say it was very normal, which we were excited to see because 19 was a roller coaster kind of on the, on the down path because you had tariffs and all these things happening to us. And then 20 was on the up path with COVID. And then 2021, it just felt like 2018 again. You know, to us, 21 just, it's felt normal. And I like normalcy. I don't like big highs. I don't like big downs. I like slow, steady growth. And 21, we did capture some of the 20 mojo, but we didn't capture a ton of it. I think it kind of went back to normal a little bit in the context of, as we'll talk about later, everything else happening in the wine world, which besides COVID, there's a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> For sure. Xavier, your book is very heavy luxury related or luxury brands. Did what Mike and Kyle say resonate with your experience? Yes, absolutely. And so thank you again, uh, Peter and Robert, for your invitation. I'm delighted to be in such good company. The book is positioned, was positioned essentially on-premise, wine lists. We are a luxury a portfolio of uh, wines and with uh, legacy brands like Rio de and uh, stars like Dominus and um, with a strong presence in fine wine retails, but not beyond a cell group of fine wine retails. So, and suddenly this market vanished overnight. It's not like during the financial crisis that things were happening quickly, but progressively the market shut down virtually overnight. So we had to step back and regroup. And fortunately, we are owned by Louis Roderer and Frédéric Rousseau, who is the president and CEO of the company and the seventh generation, told us right away a lot of wisdom. You know, we've been, we've been there before. We've been in business in 1776. 
we will survive. We'll come back. Everybody's safe. And remember that the most difficult years at Pirodre were the first 200. So to the point that was made earlier, with a sense of, of humor, that reassured everybody that uh, we had the long-term vision of this market, that we will be back, but we will be hit really hard by this pandemic. So what we did is that we took a hard look at our position in the market and we decided to explore different opportunities for bigger distribution in the broad market. And we discovered we discovered that actually our portfolio surely is uh, ultra-premium and uh, luxury wines. Actually had a lot of potential off-premise in chains, select chains, and we started to go visit and develop new clients, such as the high end of Safeway in Los Angeles. And we discovered opportunities that we would never consider before. So after this hit, actually, we started to get back some ground in the market. And we realized that actually COVID was an opportunity for us to reconsider our position in the market and open up to new opportunities. So overall, obviously, that was very difficult for, for some time. But obviously, we are better today than we were before COVID. And Xavier, being part of Champagne, Louis Roder, we've heard a lot about, or the media has reported that there may be shortages in Champagne. Is that going to happen to us this holiday season, or will we have plenty of bubbles to go around? Well, I think there is definitely a shortage, including on our side. As far as Birodra is concerned, we have the same allocation of wine every year. But what happened is that um, larger brands, the leaders in the market, didn't have enough to supply the market. So obviously, that created opportunities for other brands to fare well. But as far as we're concerned, we sold out. And we believe we're going to be sold out also next, next year. And it's not only to sell out the product, it's also to position the product properly. By definition, we do not set the price on the market. And also because it's against the law. So it's very interesting to see the evolution of pricing at the level of retail. And you can see that the champagne is more expensive for most luxury brands of champagne, more expensive than it was before. And again, we as an importer, we sell to wholesalers and in turn, the wholesalers sell to retail. So the market system actually acts as the price positioner of our wines. And what we see today is that our champagne is more expensive in the, at the level of retail, which is also probably the signal that there is a higher appreciation in the market by American consumer for champagne. And that's also true for, uh, for sparkling wine. And this is the underlying trend in the U.S. that bubblies are more popular today than ever. And the future of, of bubbly sparkling wine and champagne is most likely brilliant. And this is a, something that we appreciate. Events have massively evolved with the impact of COVID, especially for the wine industry, accelerating this trend towards digitalization. Lisa, I'm curious, and how did this play out for the wine advocate in 2021? And what trends did you see during this period? Yeah, well, just to back up for a moment, I mean, during the whole lockdown period, our, our business absolutely piggybacked on the success of online retailing. And so right from the get-go, from March 2020, when the lockdown first occurred, our web views went up by 10 times what they were. It was astonishing to see on Google Analytics the jump in interest for unbiased and expert wine criticism, very much linked to the increase in online wine sales where people were obviously shopping online and then wanting some advice. Um, they would come to us and have a look. Unfortunately, subscriptions didn't also jump like 10 times, but we did see steady growth and we're still seeing that sort of slow, steady growth in subscriptions. The good news is even coming into 2021, we haven't seen a dip in that at all. We're still seeing a lot more people, subscribers become a lot more reliant on using our wine reviews. And so that's been incredible. And we're very, we're very grateful to their continued loyalty for that. 
but there was also always the question, you know, coming back to your question, <laughs> there was always the question with what would happen with events because we had to cancel a whole bunch of events that we had planned for 2020 and then into 2021, the in-person events. Meanwhile, the world was all morphing into, you know, webinars and doing things virtually, including tastings, which is, you know, no easy task. There's a, an incredible amount of logistics involved <laughs> in trying to do tastings with consumers when you you can't pour the wine out in glasses in front of them you have to arrange to have the wine repackaged for example into tubes or into little bottles and then it needs to be sent to them and then it doesn't what might work for one market won't work for another market because there's so many legalities involved there so it was all being able to have that one-on-one contact, so to speak, with our subscribers and be able to provide wine education and entertaining wine events for them was a huge challenge um, for us. And we did manage to to pull off some, I think, very successful uh, wine tasting events. We recently had the um, Kings of Rhone events that we did with Joe Zawinski. And I, I did Bordeaux 2010 event very recently. But I think, you know, coming towards the end of 2021, we're starting to see people have a bit of Zoom fatigue. I know I do. <laughs> and I think a lot of people are itching to get back to in-person events, which is definitely what I see the trend being coming into 2022. There's a lot of skittishness about large-scale events, understandably so, with, with the new variants taking over the planet. So I'm foreseeing maybe smaller-scale events, maybe more like really top-level masterclasses, dinners, um, winemaker dinners, and things like that. I'd like to think that we can keep the virtual events going as well and eventually have them working in conjunction with each other where some people can participate virtually and some people can do the in-person options. I have to ask, was switching to Zoom or other forms of media where you're maybe not, you know, not just writing behind something or not doing it in person. Was that a, was that putting some of the people out of their comfort zone? And how did people adjust through that transition? Well, for me, I found it horribly frustrating because I like to be able to see people's eyes and I like to see, you know, that excitement or boredom. <laughs> you, you, you want to gauge what the reaction of the room is. For me, I get a buzz out of that as much as I think, you know, people sitting there listening to me speak do. So I was really ready about doing webinars. That said, there's lots of opportunities for interaction. You get people, there's the chat box so you can see people putting in questions as you're talking and you can go straight through and address those. That's one of the reasons why I like Clubhouse is that you can actually bring people up and talk to them and hear the reactions and things like that. And that for me is, is you know, really interesting because I that's the whole thing about an event is, is being able to see what people are thinking and and adjust accordingly. Sometimes when you're pitching an event, for example, you know, at a, a certain knowledge level, and you can quickly readjust depending on, you know, how the room's reacting. But with a webinar, it's kind of hard to do that. <laughs> so you mentioned that get back to in-person events, but keep some virtual events. I'm curious on what have you found that has been most effective from your point of view, or what are you looking to keep going forward? You mean in terms of the virtual side or? Yeah. What is here to stay? Like, what is the, something that like, oh, this is a new way to connect and we haven't been able to do this and we want to keep this going forward even when in-person is possible? Yeah, I think, well, that's it. Exactly. I mean, I think when we do in-person events, we have to focus on a single city and it really limits the opportunities for, you know, we're a global publication and whatever city you pick to go to and and focus on for your events. Everybody else around the world is going to be frustrated because they can't necessarily make it. And so that's kind of what I was suggesting there is that, say, you focus on New York for doing events and you've got these fabulous masterclasses, you know, lined up focusing either on regions or wineries to be able to offer an opportunity for people to zoom in or, or come in on a webinar and at least watch the proceedings. There might be a possibility of getting samples to them, but even if you can't, just being able to be there and watch that opportunity or have it on a playback, I think is is something that we hadn't 
considered before, we haven't done before, but would be fun, I think, for people who do rightly feel frustrated that, no, they can't fly all the way to New York for this weekend to do this event, but they'd really like to participate anyway. So I think that's one great thing about doing this. We, we found how easy it is now to bring people in from around the world. I'm just curious if anybody else on the panel has thoughts on how they see virtual events evolving for the wine industry. If they want to chime in, please feel free to unmute. On the importer side, it's very interesting because I used to travel a lot to visit markets and uh, attend general sales meetings. In Texas, for instance, four main markets or five main markets, and I would spend the entire week there uh, working with our friends at Southern Glacier. And this year, we did a virtual training seminar, wine tasting, and uh, we had 150 people on the Zoom. And I agree that there is a little fatigue, Zoom fatigue, but I think it has to stay at the level of the B2B relationship, which is importer and wholesalers. And I did the same also with uh, key retailers. This is uh, an easy way to engage uh, consumers. I did also virtual tastings with, uh, with clubs, such as the, the Rolling Hills in Los Angeles. And people had previously acquired a package, wine and food, uh, that was Viola Champagne, actually. And they were in their homes and they had gathered friends and this is totally new. And I was speaking from my office and uh, I was in 20 homes at the same time talking to about 80 people. And I can tell you, I really enjoyed it. So there is definitely an upside about this uh, new normal. And we've all learned to do it because I was not trained. So we learned while practicing. And I think it's very exciting also for winemakers. They can do that from their sellers, from their vineyards. So there is a convenience to it. It will not be all we do, but I think it's a, it's a great opportunity. So inflation has been a major topic in 2021, even though wine pricing has been an important topic for a while as prices keep escalating, as it seems. In episodes 73 to 75 of Ex Chateau, we talked to three wine investment companies that believe fine wine pricing will continue to be higher than inflation and potentially higher than even like the stock market. Otherwise, their business wouldn't make a lot of sense. So, Kyle, from the retail perspective, have you seen prices going up and what's been driving that in 2021? I've seen some prices go up, not to the extent that maybe a lot of people were thinking. I think there was a chance to keep prices kind of the same based on the fact that tariffs were off from a Franco or European centric scenario. California prices remain kind of steady, but I see them going up, but maybe not because of inflation, but because of 2020. And I think there's going to be opportunity there for California to, to raise prices in light of the fact that there won't be as much stock available for the next 12 to 18 months. So I see that as a real scenario. On the Bordeaux front, prices did go up for 2020 futures. The campaign was a little disappointing. We were hoping that the, the Bordelais would take a little easy on us with regards to the 2020 futures campaign especially with three great vintages in a row. And instead, they kind of went, okay, how about this? And it was like, okay. So we did see some increases there. Burgundy remained pretty steady, slight increases, nothing crazy. I'm trying to think about a part of the world where I saw major price increases. And the only places I've seen maybe that we've seen some serious price increases have been like with German wines. But those wines, the great Rieslings from the Nata and Mosul and, and Rhine, et cetera, a lot of them had been underpriced before, especially at those Cabinet and Spelese levels. And, and now we see those wines going up in price. But when you see the hillsides, when you see the vineyard work involved, you're like, okay, yeah, no, you get that. That's cool. <laughs> you can keep those dollars. In general, I'd say more steady from a price standpoint than I had anticipated from a retail perspective. In Xavier, there was 25% tariffs on wines coming from many countries in Europe earlier. Did you have to raise your prices as they came in, or how did that work from your perspective? I think it was a very interesting situation, very challenging, obviously. And actually, what we did is that we sit down with our suppliers, we sat with our wholesalers, and what we decided to do from a strategic standpoint is to try to absorb we were in the belief that that would be only temporary and we didn't want to disrupt too much the market. So although there has been price increase, but it was not, that was not our decision. We decided to absorb basically the price increase because of the tariffs and also because of shipping costs. You witnessed, you know, that these last few months and last couple of years, actually. 
And uh, that was basically one third, one third, one third. So the supplier absorbed one third. We decided also uh, to lower our margin. And that was also a great test of partnership in terms of how we function as a market system. Um, and we have very long-lasting, mutually profitable relationship with our wholesalers. Could be, you know, Southern Glacier, Empire, RNDC. And that was, a, that was a test of our relationship. And I must say that that was an opportunity to test that relationship. And we, again, we were reassured that we are all in it together. We win together in tough times. We stay together. So it's been a very positive experience, very difficult, obviously. But we came out of that situation this year very well at the end of uh, 2021. And Mike, did you have to absorb some of those increases on the distribution side? Or were you, did you have to pass them on to your customers? We bought long on some items, some key items in advance of the initial tariff just announcement. Took us a little while, so but we bought long on some things that were key. So we did not get affected on certain items. We negotiated with some of our top suppliers and we sacrificed some of our margins to try to meet in the middle. So we tried not to pass that that increase on to our customers. Now, there's certain items, allocated items, where there wasn't any additional support from our suppliers. And so for certain items, whether that was, you know, limited Premier Crew or Ground Crew Burgundy, because of the market and the frenzy for those wines, those increases were absorbed quite easily. The main impact was really due to unknown producers. So younger producers that are growing their business new to the market and then are pricing themselves because of the tariff. And it's a small far, you know, small farmers that were challenging to find support for us. Now we're pricing ourselves above the categories. That was a challenge. That in itself was definitely a challenge. But for the most part, it really was just a handful of, of our producers where we really felt an impact. And then with the bulk of our purchases, we had enough stateside inventory to get us through the first half of the year. So we kind of stalled our purchases while they were wondering if the tariff was going to remain or be repealed. And when it was repealed, we put our POs in. So the nine, like 2019 Burgundy, for example, our 19s came in. And finally, because of the container shortages, they finally arrived in November and December. And some of them are 7 to $10 less a bottle than the prior vintage. So that's a win for a lot of our customers that are excited about the vintage. And then with the post-tariff price being in place really has been a boon for us. Lisa, I'm curious from a wine buying perspective, did you see prices go up across the board or are they concentrated to imports or domestic producers? What is your take on how prices moved in 2021? I can't really speak on pricing because we don't actually take pricing into account for our reviews. But what I do see is, you know, at the back end, what people are looking for with regards to the tariffs. I did towards the early part of this year see a lot more people looking more at domestic wines than they normally would, and especially the Napa 2018s and 2019s. And that is also because of what was alluded earlier. When we look at 2020, because of the, the wildfires that happened in California, it's going to be very little 2020 on the market, as I keep reminding our subscribers. And 2018, 2019 are very good years. So a lot more people, I think, trying to stock up on the 2018s and 2019s probably pushing prices up as well. I think we'll see more of an impact on the 2021 vintage from Napa when that, that starts to come out, which is a slightly smaller vintage, but it will definitely have an impact on price, I think, going forward. And also, I was going to mention with the Bordeaux Premier's campaign, which is also um, previously mentioned, it was almost like a, a perfect storm for the Chateau because they unfortunately came out uh, you know, higher almost across the board on 2019 and in some cases a lot higher, even though the vintage was not as consistent as 2019. So yeah, coupled with the uncertainty of tariffs and looming supply chain issues that were happening, I think it was a disappointing campaign with the prices going higher as they did for the 2020s that were released. So that was certainly an issue that, that we noticed. And also we could see it, you know, in 
interest-wise with people searching. The 2019s, when they came out, it was our you know biggest report of the year that year. And in 2020, um, it was a very successful campaign. 2020 was not quite <laughs> as exciting um, by comparison. So I would like to get a Diana's perspective from a producer. Obviously, we talk about supply chain. It doesn't just mean shipping wine, but it could also mean the things that you need in order to make your wine from dry goods and or or exporting and and so I'm curious on what have the supply chain how have the supply chain disruptions impacted you as a producer and has it made you consider anything around pricing yeah no we've certainly felt uh the disruption in the supply chain um it's the, you know it's actually been an issue prior to covid glass certainly there's been a glass shortage which is not at all covid related um, for years. And I actually find that <laughs> as a, a nice springboard to uh, awareness about the way we do get our resources and use our resources. You know, sand is actually <laughs> running out, um, as unbelievable as that might sound. Uh, you can't use desert sand, for example, to make glass. You need river sand. And so we're, we're running out of that. So I think that getting media coverage about these shortages is actually a huge opportunity to, for people to understand um, a little bit more about the, the full life cycles of all of the things that we use and throw away. But um, so because we have been confronted with these shortages for a long time, we've all gotten good about ordering early. And that's, uh, that, that's, that's really how we have to manage everything from our glass orders to our labels to, to capsules. And that can mitigate the issues that we're seeing right now. And that's what we have done. Another thing that it's not necessarily COVID related, but is labor shortages. It's been very difficult to get people to work in the vineyards, both in Burgundy and in Napa. And, and so I think all of these issues just are a good opportunity to talk more about the deeper questions that are necessary to making wine. So far, yeah, in terms of pricing, we have absorbed the cost of raising glass and we have absorbed the cost of raising cork costs, and we have not passed that on to the consumer. Interesting. So, and you found that uh, throughout being able to connect to consumers in a slightly different way, that their interest in things like sustainability and understanding the cost dynamics of their products, is that something that you found is growing or, or increasing in the market space in 2021? Yeah, I think it is. I really think that we're having a huge conscious awakening about climate change and about, yes, uh, how our systems that were really too short-sighted, not truly sustainable in the, in, the, in the true sense of the word, are breaking down. I think everyone's feeling it in different ways. And yeah, talking about how it specifically impacts winemaking, just it spills over into all aspects of our consuming habits. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot of interest on, on those subjects. Yeah, it definitely seemed like there was a lot of segmentation in a lot of the marketing that was happening in the digital space around wine from anything from sustainability to natural wine to clean wine. And, and if anything, clean wine became a little bit more of a topic in 2021 because it got some recent celebrity endorsements in 2021. And the responses from the actual traditional wine industry has been anything from, hey, this is fake marketing or snake oil to this is really smart trendy consumer branding and packaging. I'm curious, Lisa, as a master of wine on the panel, maybe you could help set some definitions for clean wine versus natural wine or, or non-clean versus natural wine. How do you think about those terms? Do they actually mean something to you? Oh, no. I'm not going to touch any definition of clean wine in particular, because as far as I can see, it really doesn't exist. It, it really is just a marketing fabrication. It's people looking to make money out of consumer health concerns and ignorance. The sort of consumers that believe hard seltzer is healthier than beer because it's a picture of fruit on the can. And as for natural wine, nowadays we have a vague understanding of what people mean when they use that term, but I still think it's misleading. And I'm not saying that I have anything against natural wine. I, I don't, but it continues to mean different things to different people. It doesn't describe a style. It describes a, a broad list of intentions. Wineries, for example, that are, are certified organic or biodynamic and adhere to a code of practices and are audited, well, 
these terms, organic and biodynamic, those are definable. And even things like orange wine or pet mat at least describe styles that mean something to people. But clean wine and natural wine definitions probably be regulated or not used at all. That sums up pretty much how I uh, what I think about it, the topic as well. <laughs> Kyle, as from a retail perspective, have you seen people come into your store requesting these new segmentations? Like, I guess all three, I guess, and I know they're all very different. So like, if you've seen consumers come in and asking for natural wine, clean wine, or just generally curious about how the wine is made in the sustainability and like, how do you, how do you message those things in your store? Well, praise Jesus. No one's coming and asked for clean wine yet. Uh, <laughs> and I hope they don't. With regards to natural wine and that sort of deal, there is a lot of customer curiosity, but it's going to take a lot of education to funnel and focus the customer curiosity in the right way. Because right now you got a lot of people thinking that natural wine is the, well, how can I say this politely? You know what you see like in a lot of Parisian natural wine bars and Brooklyn wine bars and stuff. And and a lot of people are being almost trained to expect mercaptans and pretenomyces and mousiness in a wine. And that's normal. And of course, that's not normal. And the point is, and the real problem that we have is with natural wine is that there are brilliant, quote, natural wines, wines grown organically, made with minimal sulfites, um, everything doing right, whether it's, you know, Chermet at Domaine de Vissou and the Beaujolais or somebody like that. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. And we really have to dial that in because it's our job as wine merchants to educate the customer when they come in and say, I would like to buy a natural wine. It will not kill me. And it's like, okay, let's talk about this, right? And then it's our job as, as a merchant as well to bring in the best examples of those wines that really do kind of do what they're supposed to do in the context of what natural wine is supposed to be, which is the truest conveyance of terroir, the truest sense of place, or this, this true note of purity, which ironically, the vast majority of, quote, natural wines as perceived by the consumers reading articles do not have. So for us, it's a really sticky wicket. I love talking to customers about it and uh, educating them from a merchant standpoint. And so I, I hope it does continue. I don't mind wine being made this way. But as a wine merchant, I feel that wine has to be made properly. And just because you do nothing that can be the worst thing at all. You know, that can be the worst thing of all. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Xavier is a wine marketing expert. Where do you land on this clean wine movement, how it hits consumers or better targets certain parts of the wine-consuming market? Well, I think, um, if I agree with, the, with Lisa in terms of the lack of definition, I like the fact that there is a conversation about wine. And I think the big picture for me is to engage a new generation of consumers, a new generation of fans. Consumers are occasional drinkers for me. Fans are uh, consumers who would follow your brand. And it's a point on communication, whether this is clean or natural, I don't know. But the way we communicate with the mental health Maison Market Amen is truth in wine. And truth is wine is the idea that when we talk about the terroirs and uh, we show images of the vineyards and we explain the type of viticulture, dry farming for dominis, for instance, or permaculture, or organic, uh, biodynamic for Albirodrea, just to take two examples, we don't need to use a, a term uh, clean or natural. We just show the consumers, you know, what we do. Same in the sellers. Uh, who is making the wine? Who is the, the lady or who is the man behind the wine? And I think... We all know that a bottle of wine is the product of a very long process. So we communicate on the process. We put a face on each the wine. And if you log on to mmdusa.net, you will see. So the point I'm trying to make is that, of course, some brands coin themselves clean or natural. But I'm happy that there's a conversation because obviously they've drawn some interests from maybe younger consumers. And this is what the challenge is all about for us in the wine industry, is to win the heart of a new generation. And we need to talk their language. We need to address their need. Those are all really good points. So Xavier mentions a lot about educating consumers. Diana, as an expert in sustainability and as one of the, the faces, as Xavier called it, uh, of brand and uh, of wine, do you have a perspective on how we can better educate consumers on sustainability? 
I just, yeah, I would build on what was already said. And there is a lot of positive in the natural wine movements. And in I had never heard of the clean wine movement until, until we were exchanging about this podcast. But what's positive is it, it shows that people are worried about our climate, are worried about sustainability. But as Lisa said, if these terms aren't actually defined and protected, then it's just greenwashing. And that's true of sustainable also. There is no definition of sustainable. And, you know, here I am talking to you this evening from Burgundy, France, where grapes have been grown and wine has been made since the Romans. And I'm really wondering if it is wise to teach my own kids how to make wine because I'm not sure how much future there is. So our term sustainability really, really has to be defined and protected because it's an important principle. You know, a lot of the things that are treated with so- on, put on soils and called sustainable will not last the 2,000 years that we've already had here in, in Burgundy. They'll last about 30, and we know that it kills soils. So we need to be ruthless about defining what is actually sustainable. Great. So in one of our goals of Ex Chateau is to build a community around the business of wine. So I want to open up to the audience. Anybody down below that wants to pop up or just raise your hand, we'll bring you up if you want to ask a question. Obviously, one of the advantages of being live on Clubhouse is that we get to have a panel and actually have people come up and talk. And if any of the panelists want to ask each other questions, that'd be great. And, you know, I definitely think there's a lot of learnings and takeaways that people can gather from this group. Do you have a question for the panelists? Please let us know what your question is. Maybe let us know your background real quick and then uh, who you'd like to answer the question. Hi, yes, thank you. I would like to, I guess, maybe either Lisa or Kyle. My name is Matthew Spiro Jager. I just started a winery called Phil Wines. This is my first harvest this year. And as we're talking about things like natural, clean wines, that's not something I've ever really gotten on board with. But I do try to source from organic vineyards and SIP certified, things like that, or sustainably farmed. So how would you best recommend, as I'm going out and peddling my wares, to educate and communicate that information without, shall we say, buying into the greenwashing or the hype? Thank you. I think it's really just about being completely honest and transparent. For me, you know, speaking to subscribers, speaking to readers and consumers, it's really about communicating those real efforts that you're making. Perhaps now you're not ready or you're just thinking about going into something like organic or biodynamic conversion or or what your philosophy is going to even be for the vineyard. And that's probably something that more that Diana can speak to. But in terms of communication, I think you have to be wary about greenwashing. You have to be wary about using terms that don't actually mean anything because I think more and more so consumers and as you move up the sort of education scale, people see straight through those things. And particularly in these early days, you've got one chance to make an impression and you want it to be the right one. So just being honest about what you're doing, but be very clear in your own mind first and then be very clear in your communication about what your philosophy is, what you're aiming to do, how you intend to do that, what you, the real things that you are doing. That would be my advice. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa's spot on, you know, and the key is to make sure that if you're going to use those points, make them a point, but not the point. The point is your wine and always focus on making the best wine you can make. And nature will dictate to you how you make that wine. Your conditions, your situation might not allow you to be biodynamic. You might have to be like loot raisonné, you know, work organically most of the time. But if the S hits the fan, you go in and take care of business. And, and that's going to be up to you as a business person in the wine business. I would definitely try and work as naturally as you can. I think it's great for the environment. It's great for our kids. It's great for the future. But at the same time, make the best wines you possibly can. Thank you both very much. Next on stage, we have, hopefully I'm saying this right, Zayed? Yeah, it's Zayed. Thanks for having me on the stage. Thanks, Robert. So the question goes a bit to Lisa, Xavier, and Kyle. It's actually, okay, aside from the hit that the sector got from the pandemic, the restriction with the logistics and the shipping and everything, how is the sector coping with the climatic events, with the climate change? I know that Lisa mentioned this. And it's really good to understand and to see this, that this is really happening, but how this is really hitting the big wineries, the old ones, the ones that are producing, let's say, mass products or they have distribution. Maybe small ones are easier to adapt because it's more local, it's a local market. 
what are the nature-based solutions that will be adapted by different wineries? How can they save the taste, the crunchiness, the flavor, whether it's the grape itself, whether it's also the bottling, the cork, everything, or even maturing in oak, because all these resources are depleting. So thanks. I'm Ziad and I'm done speaking. Thank you. Wow. That was a multi-layered question. Yeah. (laughs) Who wants to jump in? Yeah, I was just going to mention here, I, I live in Napa Valley here. 2020 was a, a very difficult year here, not just because of the pandemic, but, you know, it, towards the end of the year, we were hit by unfathomable wildfires and a real wake-up call, particularly coming after 2017, where we saw that a similar scale of wildfires and the reality hitting home that these are not one-off events. These are things that we're going to have to live with. These are big, real changes that are going to impact anyone who's working and producing wine. And it's not just here. You know, these things have been going on in, well, the wildfires happened in the south of France, and they've been going on in South Africa. They've been going on in in Australia for many years. Um, We're seeing impacts as, as far north as Oregon and Washington State. It's something that everybody's really coming to terms with now, you know, how are we going to be able to cope with all of these different situations that are being thrown at us? In Bordeaux, it's the impact of the dry growing seasons that they're getting sometimes, or sometimes very wet ones in 2021, but these extreme weather patterns without having necessarily, um, in Bordeaux, for example, you, you, you can't irrigate when the, the growing season is can be horrifically dry sometimes, we've seen in recent years. So there are all these questions that are being asked and people are just having to rethink completely how they do things. And there's no simple answer to it, except that people are determined to make it work. And they know, and I think coming back to what Diana was saying, they know and they're realizing in their hearts that they have to do it sustainably because the Band-Aid fixes that used to work are not going to work anymore. So it's thinking longer term as well. And whether that means smaller yields to be able to dry farm more here in Napa Valley, for example. More and more people are looking at what Christian Moex has been doing at Dominus and dry farming and how that, that's been working out and and considering it here as well. We had real water shortages here in Napa Valley in 2021, which is why we have a very, very small crop coming through um, for, for 2021. So there's a lot to consider. And, and your question doesn't have any easy answers, but it's something that everybody throughout the wine producing world is working very hard and is very dedicated to make work. I guess that's all I can say about that. What I would like to add to what uh, Lisa and Diana have just said because climate change is such a big topic with multi-facets, obviously. If we look at climate change in a positive way, consider Piemonte or Champagne, the two regions historically struggling weather patterns. And these two regions in particular, and we represent Rio obviously, and also Pio Cesare, and these are the two regions, two appellations that benefited a lot from climate change. So how do family wineries embrace this change? It seems foolish to try to resist climate change. So has like Louis has embraced it. The non-vintage of Louis the Brut Premier, was created in the 1980s, at the end of the 1970s, 1980s. And the concept that was the brainchild of Jean-Claude Rousseau was the previous president, CEO, and winemaker, the sixth generation in the Rodrea family. And the purpose of Jean-Claude getting the mandate from his grandmother, Madame Camille Rodrea, was to be able to ship champagne every year. And possibly with what was coined at the time the house style, the style of Louis Rodrea, and Jean-Claude being a graduate of University of Montpellier in Viticulture, his entire career, 35 years, spanning 35 years, was to produce a wine of the highest possible quality with always the same style. And that was Brut Premier. Brut Premier was very successful, became the flagship of Rirodrer, the champagne that was produced in the highest volume. At the end of the 1990s, Jean-Baptiste Le Caillon, who joined the company in 1989, uh, became the winemaker and also the leader in the vineyards. And embracing climate change decided that 
because one of the facets or one of the outcomes of climate change in Champagne is that every year, not only you have huge variations of uh, weather patterns, I mean, you, you get very different flavors and aromas in the berries. So the question 15, 20 years ago is that what? Well, are we still resisting the fact that we get something very, very different every year? And they reconceive completely the non-vintage. And this year, we've launched very successfully Collection 242, which is a new, what we call multi-vintage of Louis The broad premier is discontinued, although it was very successful. And the difference conceptually is that every year there will be a new number. 242 is actually the 242nd blend by Louis Rodriard. Next year, that will be 243rd. And that was the creation of a réserve perpétuelle, a Solera reserve, and, uh, in which we have a harvest from 2012 to 2016. And 35% of the collection 242 is actually the perpetual reserve, 10% about reserve in oak, and one harvest, which is 2017. So what's the point? The point is that no longer we want to resist climate change and the fact that we get uh, different types of berries every year with different potential of aromas and flavors, but we embrace it. So every year, our multi-vintage will be the same somehow, but also a little bit different. And uh, so it is a major, major shift that took about 12 years. And to the question by Matthew about how you talk about your endeavor, your project as a new winery, I think it's about you. It's your beliefs, your convictions, what you're trying to do. And wine is a very emotional product. And if people can connect with your story, they're going to buy your wine and they're going to enjoy your wine. We need to get Diana to chime in here. I, I am curious, having one foot in Napa, one foot in Burgundy, maybe how your approach differs between those two in terms of farming, in terms of dealing with climate change, because they're very different regions. And then before you answer, if anybody else has a question, please raise your hand now so we can get you queued up, because I don't want to take all of our panelists' day. So please uh, just raise your hand and we can bring you to the stage. Go ahead, Diana. Thanks, thanks. I was going to jump in because I've been spending the last four years and particularly over COVID studying the subject of climate change and how the wine industry can both can be effective in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And then, of course, the question of adaptation is a separate one. I think it's really important to make that distinction that there are two conversations. Adaptation is one. How are you going to, as you said, Ziad, how are you going to keep the crunchiness? How are you going to cope with drought? Those, those are questions of adaptation, but no conversation is complete unless you're also talking about how to decelerate climate change, because as long as we are emitting greenhouse gases, it's going to get worse and worse. So any sustainability plan, once again, would also include a reduction in emissions with a goal of reaching zero emissions, as everybody, every country that has signed the Paris Agreement has agreed, zero emissions by no later than 2050. So every company should be thinking about that. Every individual should be thinking about that. And we should really be talking about it. In terms of adaptation, yes, it's very, from Burgundy to Napa, it's quite different. I think the major subject right now in Burgundy and France is frost. Every year we have, or we have been in the last three, four years, had an unseasonably warm end of winter spring, which causes the shoots to push. And then we get normal cold weather and we get terrible frost damage. So figuring out how to, how to prevent frost is going to be the major issue for us in Burgundy. And then in Napa, certainly the major issue is drought and heat. And Lisa addressed that a bit. I think we definitely need to rethink spacing so that we can start looking at dry farming. There are also there are so many techniques to think about. Agroforestry is actually really exciting. Even in Burgundy here, we're going to be planting, co-planting vineyards in uh, trees in the vineyards to provide shade and to retain humidity. So that's a very exciting possibility. And of course, then shade cloth has been employed for quite a few years now, and we'll be, we'll be seeing more and more shade cloth. So we'd also love to solicit ideas and topics that you all would like to see us cover here on X Chateau. Maybe for our panelists, uh, as a podcast covering the business of wine, what topics do you think need to be done in more depth and have more uh, light shined on them? Anybody have thoughts on things that they think would be interesting for the wine industry to be covered in a podcast like this focused on the business of wine? Uh, certainly. I think uh, how do we engage uh, a new generation? How do we win the heart of the 20-something, my children, 
my children, they drink wine because they grew up in a family that drinks wine. But looking around and at their friends, when people don't grow up in a family that drinks wine, they don't drink wine. They drink something else. And I think it's a, it's a huge challenge, but it's a great opportunity. And again, we need to address their needs. We need to have an interesting conversation. We need to speak their language. And certainly climate change is certainly something on the philosophical standpoint that is of strong interest to them. They need to fix it because they're going to live in this world. And I, I absolutely agree with Diana. We need to project an image of an industry that is steadfast on fighting climate change. And it is key to win the heart of a new generation. They don't have that perception as of today. And we need to change. We need to change the narrative by facts, by providing facts and actions. Yeah, we covered uh, marketing to millennials for the wine industry in an earlier episode this year based on last year's feedback. But Gen Z is now just entering, just starting to be able to consume wine or, or alcohol in the U.S. And so that's definitely an area that we've talked about. So that's a great suggestion. Any other suggestions from the panelists on future uh, 2022 topics for us? I need to dig through the back catalog a little bit more and come up with some ideas and get back to you. Sounds good. Well, just to wrap up the episode, I did want to give, you know, want to end on a good note. Um, Wine is a product that we like to enjoy with other people and and oftentimes celebrate things or just have an intimate moment and share and talk about something that's excellent in your glass. So I'm curious for each panelist, what was the most memorable wine slash wine experience of your 2021 Maybe we could start with uh, Kyle. Ah, all right, cool. You're making it tough for me. Okay, okay. I'd say like the most emotional wine experience I probably had this year was um, a wine that I hadn't tasted since I initially sold it, what, 30 years ago. That was the 1990 Chateau Rias. And a um, good friend of mine, you know, a good customer of ours, we did this big dinner here in Southern California and everyone brought magnums. And, and he actually brought a magnum of Chateau Rias 1990 that he bought for me back in 1992. And it was a great wine on release. And uh, I remember the one time, the two times I had it, the one time I had a head cold and I really didn't get to appreciate the wine for what it was. And and it was really great going back and, and sharing that special bottle with him. And it was a wine that was like near the start of my wine career. And it's one of the greatest French red wines I've ever had in my life. And, and dag nabbit, it still is. It was an absolutely stunning wine. And uh, yeah, that one, that one caught my attention real fast. Wow. I'm jealous. Michael, what about you? Well, I'm pretty fortunate. I drank a lot of great wine this year, and there are so many different top bottlings. But to be honest with you, I think the wine that was my most memorable was a really crappy 375 of Uni Blanc and Colomard on my first flight back to Europe after the pandemic on my way to Paris. Easily the most memorable wine. It felt like things were kind of starting to get somewhat back to normal. It's interesting how uh, it doesn't have to be the most expensive wine. It can just be uh, stirring up emotions around a moment that you're uh, that you're celebrating, and you still remember what that wine was, though. hundred oh, percent. Well, I mean, it's Uni Blanc and Colombard. I mean, who can who could forget who that? Can, uh, get that <laughs> exactly. Uh, what about you, Diana? I'm sure you have the opportunity to drink some amazing wines throughout 2021. What has been a very enjoyable, memorable moment for you in 2021? Yeah, I have to confess, I have. But honestly, yesterday I had an amazing night, and my husband and I went to to Piedmont for three days. And it was really our first trip since since this two years of COVID and not being able to travel. Our first, first trip just for fun. We went and visited a bunch of family and checked in on wines in California, which we hadn't been able to do and that kind of thing. So it was so much fun to finally get together with colleagues. And there was a bottle of Montvillero, no, it was actually a Jeroboam, of Montvillero from Berlotto of 2011. And it was sublime. It was, you know, one of these, a Nebbiolo made whole cluster. So a lot of meeting of minds and hearts with colleagues. It was just a great moment and a great wine. Wow, that sounds spectacular. And in large format as well. It's the, it shows you care. <laughs> I guess, yeah, yeah. No, it was fun. And Lisa, what about you? Oh, well, last month, and sorry, I was just scrambling to think what's the first wine that pops in my head. <laughs> uh, last month, I was I was very fortunate to be able to host a charity wine event in Nashville, Tennessee, where they had 32 of the top 2005 Bordeaux wines, all of the top names there. And I, I remember particularly the one that sort of flashed in my head was the 2005 Chateau Margaux. 
because at the time when I was speaking about the wine, I remembered so clearly being in Bordeaux in 2006, tasting the primeurs with Paul Pontellier, who made the wine. And I can remember his enthusiasm and excitement for the vintage and how much passion he had. And it was that was a special moment because this is what wine is all about. It's about reliving those those great, great moments, you know, and, and remembering them and, and how it just captures everything in a bottle. And that's exactly what that 2005 Margot was for me, a moment captured in a bottle. Liquid time capsule. I love it. Um, and Xavier, what about yourself? Well, I remember very well. That was August 29th and it was a bright sunny day in Paris. We took my mother to a beautiful uh, brasserie, Parc de Saint-Cloud. Parc de Saint-Cloud is a beautiful park that's overlooking Paris on the West End. And that was her 90th birthday, 90th birthday. And they had 2019 Domaine Art Chateau de Sel on the list. And that's probably maybe the best bottle of wine I've ever had in my life because I was with my mom and a couple of friends. And it was Paris. It was a perfect day, as was just said. It was uh, capturing the moment, an extraordinary moment in, in life. So Domaine Art Chateau de Sel 2019 is my number one wine in 2021. Sometimes the wine elevates the moment and sometimes the people elevate the wine. It's, uh, and sometimes you get both at the same time. It's, uh, it's great to hear each of your own take on that very simple and always difficult to answer question. So we're going to wrap up this episode. We're going to be airing this in the next week or so on our podcast for anybody who didn't get to listen to it. We will be doing an editing pass to kind of edit out some things and get it down to a right format. But I want to thank everybody on the panel for really spending the time and, and, uh, and doing the dry run beforehand. I really appreciate you doing this. We've been developing a really amazing audience for this podcast, and and it's something that you know we feel like we've gotten a lot of great feedback on, and and it's from the support and help from people like you on the panel that have really made this stuff possible. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Bye, and Peter. Thanks, so. yeah. Thank you for having yeah. us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. And don't forget, you can become a patron of X Chateau by visiting patreoncom Chateau. If you'd like to support us to continue delivering content that the wine industry needs. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.